Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly well with all. Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week, Under the Radar, District 4 City Councilor Charles Yancey is making the most of his last few weeks in office. Arguments to raise the minimum wage are finding a foothold elsewhere, but will they take hold in Massachusetts? Plus, we're trash-talking in Boston. Later, we're putting down the mouse and picking up the hardback. We'll talk to Amy Traverso about why cookbooks are still selling strong and what new local cookbooks might be good to put on your gift list. But first, I am joined by David Scharfenberg, Boston Globe politics reporter. Hello, David. Hello there. (laughs) And Jennifer Smith, staff reporter for the Dorchester Reporter. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Hi. And also with me, Seth Daniel, senior reporter for the Independent News Group, which includes the Revere Journal and Chelsea Record. Hello, Seth. Great to be here, Callie. So let's jump off uh, right away with your story um, or a story that you pointed out to us, um, David, about this uh, 15-dollar minimum hourly wage. Most interesting to me about this is... um, the fact that somebody is suggesting that we have different minimum wages across the state. A kind of interesting idea. Is anybody else, first of all, is anybody else doing that anywhere in the country? Yeah, actually, the the $15 minimum wage has sort of taken off in some places. Um, San Francisco, L.A. has passed one. I think there might be one up in Seattle as well. Um, So it's kind of interesting that Boston's been a little behind the curve on this. Um, And... uh, Part of the issue here, as one of my colleagues in The Globe reported uh, in this piece, is that uh, the way the state law works is uh, we have kind of a a lot of cities and towns have to apply to the state essentially for permission to do things like this, including the minimum wage. That's a bit of a procedural hurdle here that's getting in the way. Um, There has been some consideration of this in uh, places like Cambridge, and they're saying, can we do this? Can we not do this? They're trying to kind of find ways around the law perhaps tying it to uh, your business license. You know, if you want to do business in the city of Cambridge, you've got to pay, you know, a minimum wage of close to $15. Um, This is known kind of nationally as the fight for 15. It really started with uh, fast food restaurants, uh, workers down in New York City, and it's really kind of exploded, but it's yet to come here. And part of the reason is our political structure. Um, And I think it feeds into a larger kind of debate about, you know, what are we doing in Massachusetts around kind of income inequality issues? What are we not doing? You know, this is one of the big kind of marquee things happening around the country, and yet it's not happening here. This this is one reason why. Well, when you say it's not happening here, let's be clear. The protests are happening here. Yes. The fight for 15 is happening here, but not the uh, raising of the minimum wage thus far. And we're scheduled to go to $11 an hour from nine in the next couple of years. But still, that's a slow crawl um, to 15. And, you know, all the people who are out here marching for for uh, fight for 15 will tell you it, they just can't make it. It's not a livable wage, Seth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. Um, obviously, a lot of this has been going on in our area at the airport in East Boston. Chelsea, a lot of the human services uh, groups have led those protests. Um, um, a lot of their workers who are asking for that live in Chelsea, to be frank. Um 
But I think there was a good point made in the article um, about if you're going city by city, um, there's a competition piece here that's almost insurmountable. I remember when they were trying to um, raise the age for cigarettes and uh, in Revere they were trying to do this and it looked like a slam dunk and then the businesses said, well, we'll just you know go over to Chelsea. People just go to Chelsea and buy their cigarettes and, and they were right <laughs> because that is what happens in other places and, and the same thing could happen here. Well, okay, we're going to have a Dunkin' Donuts. Well, we'll just open it up in Everett instead of Revere because Revere's got a higher wage. We can't do that. So um, I don't know how they're going to solve that. And that was pointed out in the piece that, um, uh, that David had. And um, I don't know where you go with that. If you have different um, standards in different cities and you know you just go across the line, it's 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 easier for a business. What do you do? But you know what, Jennifer, it could work um, to bring about this fifteen dollar an hour uh, minimum faster actually, mm-hmm. because if Cambridge decides, that's my hometown, we're going to pay $15 an hour at the Dunkin' Donuts to those workers, and people, they lose workers to Cambridge, then you got to do something elsewhere, right? Right. <laughs> and I think that there was a very interesting point in that article about the idea of city-by-city city, uh, techniques being used to pressure the state as a whole, where if you don't have that consensus overall, uh, one approach to really take that on is to basically have a city-by-city grassroots effort. So what was curious to me going through the article uh, that David passed along was where that even starts. Is there a smaller component to this um, beyond even city-by-city, neighborhood association by neighborhood Mm -hmm. association, business by business? um, If you're focusing on, for instance, implementing just fast food, uh, minimum wage is the start for that, just uh, workers in a specific area and a specific venue really pushing for it who might be historically more marginalized than another. So while overall the approach is looking for a comprehensive $15 an hour minimum wage, uh, those smaller components are very interesting to me where that kind of snowballs up from from a local level to a city level to, I'd imagine a lot of them would hope, a state level and a national level. I mean, you know, that's I'll, a good point. I was going to say, too, places mm-hmm. like Boston and Cambridge that are economic powerhouses, you know, these businesses feel like they have to be there because there's such a concentration of people and there's so much money there that they do have some leverage to push this in a way a smaller town might not. Um, there are some interesting efforts up on Beacon Hill, for instance, too. There's some legislation that would raise uh, wages for those who work in big box stores. Uh, it's, hmm. it's not particularly going anywhere at the moment, but there are various kind of proposals to chip away at this to go here and there and try to uh, build some momentum. Um, it's unclear where they're going to go. So, um, how did we get to, and maybe you don't know this, but Massachusetts has had a higher, sounds paltry now, but a higher minimum wage than the federal government. Yep. And that had to take some coming together on Beacon Hill at some point. So yeah. what's the problem now? Well, actually, <laughs> the state minimum wage uh, hike, which was done just a year or so ago, will actually bring the state minimum wage to the highest in the country. Um, so I think a lot of folks on Beacon Hill who might be a little nervous about passing higher minimum wages because of the business lobby and kind of the pressure they're hearing there, you know, from small businesses and large businesses alike, will tell you, you know, we've we've done that. You know, we've we've raised the statewide minimum wage in a significant way. So that could also be a political hurdle too, in terms of trying to move it further. You know, you, it's it's tough to 
uh, go get kind of an average rank and file state representative to take a tough vote when they can say, hey, look, I just did this, you know, a year ago, and I took some grief from the mom and pop stores in my district. It's going to be kind of a tough sell to get them uh, behind yet another minimum wage hike. Which is then why this uh, representative is saying, hey, oh, Senator Dan Wolf uh, from Harwich is saying, well, let's just let everybody do what they want to do. Right. He wants to pass legislation that would essentially give cities and towns the authority to uh, pass minimum wages without having to individually come to the state legislature and seek specific permission. So is your sense that something is going to happen, either what um, Jennifer has just suggested, pressures one venue, neighborhood by neighborhood association, one city to city, or uh, Dan Wolf's legislation goes through? I have not heard a lot of buzz around that legislation yet, and um, Senator Wolf is actually preparing to leave the legislature uh, in the relatively near future. So um, uh, that that doesn't mean it it won't happen, but I'm not hearing a lot of buzz around it at the moment. Uh, I think you're seeing uh, bits and pieces here. There were some uh, state, uh, I want to say, home health care workers who recently won a $15 minimum wage in their contract with the state. Uh, So I think you'll see unions pressing for it, you know, union by union, wherever they can, uh, as an attempt to kind of build up some uh, momentum there. Um, and we'll see how creative the cities and towns can get. You know, uh, Cambridge and now Boston are talking about that kind of end around, you know, tying a business license to a higher minimum wage. So that might be a way to do it. I guess my my bottom line is, are we closer to $15 an hour now than ever or no? Sure. I mean, I think the $15 uh, minimum wage push is a relatively new thing. I mean, it's in, really in the last couple of years has gotten a lot of momentum. Um, so it's, you know, it's on the table here in Massachusetts to some degree now. Um, there is talk about it, but we do have these hurdles and we have not gone as far as mm-hmm. places like LA and San Francisco, et cetera. Okay. I point out that in uh, San Francisco and I believe Seattle may Maybe Seattle, I'm confusing it with, had the strong backing of the mayor. Yes, Seattle's mayor essentially ran uh, his campaign on a higher minimum wage uh, and and really pushed it pretty hard. Yeah, so that had to make a difference. Yeah. All right, let's talk some trash, Seth. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I tell you, you find so many interesting things over there at the end of the record. Mm. This is not a, something I was thinking about, but it's pretty interesting. So tell sure. us about it. Well, it's it's um it's the the story is the industrial areas in Boston, right hugging downtown that have become so desirable. Everybody wants to live downtown. Developers want to build condos, apartments right next to downtown, and it's just the trend. So you have a place, um, like I mentioned, in the Olympics uh, where um, New Market is over in Dorchester. And all of a sudden that became stadiums and high-rises and, the, you know, the people who, who provide our meat to us in the entire region said, hold on a second, right? Uh, it's the same thing in, in Charlestown. Uh, the, the Bunker Hill Industrial Park is um, – you've probably seen the Boston Sand and Gravel and all those places over there by Bunker Hill Community College. And it's been an industrial area forever. Um, but there are people who want to live there now, and there are developers, um, you know, uh, putting putting in plans to to build stuff there. There's already there's a plan there already for a couple hundred units, um, you know, high end transit oriented development on that side. Uh, a developer from who's been developing on the Boston Common just paid nearly fifteen million dollars for a one story warehouse. What's he going to do? We don't know. <laughs> Probably luxury housing. That's what he does. Um, so that that whole area is is an industrial zone, and people want to want to live there. The other part about it is that Boston um, is is, uh, is generating a lot of trash because there's more people. 
right? And we, we apparently throw away more than we ever did. I thought we were recycling a yeah, lot I did more. Too. But yeah. I think maybe we're doing both. And um, this is actually a recycling plant that's been there since the 90s in, in Charlestown. And, um, but they don't use a lot of the space. It's, it's underutilized. And one of the things, Boston needs more trash transfer stations. We're generating more trash. We've got to have more places to get rid of it. There's only two now in Roxbury. There's two of them by Boston Medical Center. And there's a moratorium in the city for no more new ones. Obviously, no one wants these things <laughs> near where they live. Um, the city council is looking to maybe um, lift that moratorium because something has to get done. There has to be somewhere where we take this trash, sort it, and get rid of it to a landfill. So now you have these industrial areas, which are very popular, and there's a proposal in Charlestown to put one of these um, facilities there. And you also have right next door a place where there's likely going to be luxury apartments. And a lot of people want to know, how is that going to work? <laughs> you know, um, And I think it's going to happen all over these places where industrial sites over the years are right next to you know, desirable real estate. Um, and so uh, you've got uh, the state leader, um, state representative, I mean, in Charlestown said, what do we have here? Do we have an industrial park or do we have luxury housing? Where are we going? And, and the problem is the city's growing so fast that nobody's able to keep up with it um, to, to develop a, a thoughtful plan for these areas that have been no man's land. I mean, you know, under 93, who's been there in a long time? Nobody. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where this is at. Well. Jennifer, I also think um, we don't have enough housing, period. So, sure. um, you know, luxury housing is just the tiny, tiny, tiny tip of the iceberg here. So you have that to contend with. Um, but, hey, isn't, even if the city stayed the same way in terms of population, we would still have a need for housing. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so this this really is a very complicated problem for the city right now because there's just this influx of new residents that's coming in, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, the vacancy rate right now, according to a Boston Fund report, is at about 2.6 percent in Boston, mm. and it is completely unsustainable. Uh, that same report basically laid out the only thing being built anymore is either affordable housing or luxury housing. The construction costs are just too high. Uh, and it's causing a real problem in general because we need those middle-income houses. And um, it, it really is kind of exacerbating this issue in underdeveloped areas. You've got these big industrial lots. You've got these swaths of land that no one's been building on. Someone eyes it and maybe before, when there weren't as many people pouring in, it might not have been such a controversial problem. But now we've got more people creating more trash. We've got more people that also want to live there. We have a higher demand for luxury housing. So it's more likely that that's mm -hmm. the kind of development that's going to be happening in that area. And all of these things are kind of snowballing right now. Um, everything seems to be snowballing. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> uh, so you've got uh, the Walsh administration's housing push. They want to add 53,000 new units of housing by 2030. And, uh, and a lot of that's supposed to be affordable. A housing. lot of that is supposed to, to be affordable housing. So there are these these very contradictory factors. And there is kind of a question regarding who's being prioritized when when these housing decisions are being made? Is it coming down mm -hmm. to the local groups or maybe pushing over smaller units, you know, 8 to 12 unit housing? Or is this going to be something where we really need to build high density housing, but more importantly, affordable and middle income high, uh, high density housing? 
when the thing that's most likely to sell reliably would be luxury housing. Well, maybe. But how many rich people are there? I mean, come on. That's the thing (laughs) is it's not necessarily the rich people. It's that there are so many people who desperately need housing. We're, you know, a college town. Um, The universities sprawl everywhere they're uh, supposed to. Yeah, but you still got to pay for it in the end. I mean, it's it's, it's very. So to me, this comes down to political will, um, Mm -hmm. David. And somebody's got to make the decision to Jennifer's point about um, who who gets prioritized. And if, in fact, if that we need the housing and the housing is going to go there, then I guess the trash is going to go there, too. And they're going to figure out how to make it nice because it'll be next to luxury housing. It's the only thing I can figure. Yeah. I mean, one thing that just kind of strikes me about this, too, um, it's a real quandary. But I think we also need to remember these are the problems of success, you know. Um, yeah, that's true. You know, you look at places uh, in the mid, all across the Midwest, you know, Detroit that are uh, have the exact opposite problem. You know, they're just literally, you know, miles and miles of vacant housing. This is a city that's really booming, and that comes with its own challenges. Uh, this is one of them. Um, you know, in Charlestown, actually, I think one of the most interesting things the Walsh administration is doing is talking about uh, building a giant, you know, mixed-income housing to replace the uh, housing projects over there, which is probably their most ambitious kind of stab at uh, tackling the income inequality uh, problem. So uh, there is some stuff going on, but in a market this hot, it's, you know, there, there are limits on what the government can do. Yeah, well, we'll be seeing what's happening because the last time I checked, I don't know how you can even process the trash quietly, yeah. which would be the number no. one thing that if you're living in a luxury apartment, yeah. you don't want to hear it. Beep, beep, beep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, something's yeah, got to give thing. there. That's the thing. It's, 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 you know, the trash system in Boston is, is it's, it's for a different era. And there are so many people that we have to rethink it. It's more like a New York style thing where it's 24 hours a day, they're gathering it at night, you know, who knows. Um, yeah. Um, well, since we're talking about housing units, you have an interesting story in your neighborhood, Jennifer, that maybe we should go to right now. Because um, speaking of density, this is interesting. So a lot of people in a certain neighborhood, Dorchester, are objecting to the knocking down of a two-family house to make it more seven, what is it, seven three-bedroom townhouses. Mm-hmm. But their objections seem to not matter. Right. So what you've been seeing is a number of these interesting small projects, and obviously to the neighborhood they're not small, um, but these relatively smaller projects where you've got single-family housing um, or multifamily housing that's being knocked down or refurbished um, to make way for new developments. And a lot of the neighborhood associations, in this case Pope's uh, Pope's Hill, um, really are not – are not comfortable with the steps that are being taken, not because they necessarily object to new housing, but because they have no idea what the city policy on it is. They don't know how much their objections actually register if they are speaking out and voting these things down. And then uh, the Walsh administration is continuing to approve these zoning variances they, and we should say they're oh, yeah. not objecting in general to oh, development. Right, no. Yes, so they're, this is about density. They're very mm-hmm. clear about that. Um, mm-hmm. Most civic associations understand that, as as uh, David pointed out, it's, it's a growing city. We're in the middle of a boom right now. People need housing. Um, but they are taking issue with housing that seems out of step with the feel of the neighborhood, um, but more specifically... Uh, grossly out of step with the size of the neighborhood. So if you are in a street which is all triple-deckers or single-family homes and you suddenly throw in an 18-unit 
uh, building that looks different from the rest of them. But more importantly, it's it really is changing the feel of of the neighborhood. So they're objecting to this and and are very, very concerned that they have no idea what kind of end result their objections are having. If they bring this to the city and are told, yes, but we need more housing, then they're kind well, of this quiddling case, their thumbs. Just, the city said, no, we're going to do it. Exactly. Um, and there's so they're an, having no effect. <laughs> then, then there, and there's another case as well, which actually just got deferred on, on Dix Street in Dorchester, um, which is also a local neighborhood association that's objecting to a relatively smaller um, project, which is actually two projects that are identical um, right next to each other. So there's some issue regarding that. Um, And that looks like it's going to be a 14-unit structure. And they also objected to it. um, It got voted down in um, a relatively close vote in the Civic Association. um, But before anyone could speak on support of it, and the rumor was that there would be uh, administration Mm -hmm. support on it, uh, the developers decided to defer to ostensibly have more conversations with okay. the neighborhood. So what we have a thread here, and what I was interested in is the comments. Um, I don't <laughs> know if you, you guys looked at some of the comments, David, but people were really mad oh, and yeah. say, oh, sure. yeah, like this would not happen in Weston or Wellesley. But in Dorchester, they feel like they can just come tear down a two-family house and put eight units in it and, you know, easy peasy. Mm-hmm. And that, but what's very puzzling, the thread here, is that the administration, that being Mayor Walsh, seems is obviously in support of it. He sends his person, but he's not said anything beyond that. So what does that mean, David? Let's let, have you parse what this means. Oh, it means the difference between being a state representative, as Marty Walsh once was, and, <laughs> and now being the mayor. You know, uh, he's got a different responsibility. I mean, we just had a conversation about the pressures on this city and the lack of affordable housing. And... Um, is a real tension there, particularly for uh, you know first-term mayor who's trying to solidify his political uh, support and the neighborhoods. You want to listen to the the neighborhood uh, neighborhood activists do matter, um, but on the other hand, you have this larger responsibility and you have a lot of power as the mayor to you know, get something done if you want it to get done. So there's a tension there, and it's interesting that it's in his native Dorchester. So I'm sure mm-hmm. he's hearing maybe a little more than he normally would. <laughs> no kidding. So would you say, Seth, that in the near future, given that when we started the trash conversation <laughs> um, and and you started by saying got to have some housing people are coming here sure. that f- for the near future unless it's something egregious according to somebody else's terminology in the mm-hmm. administration it's happening they're going to approve it yeah well that's the scary part for neighborhood associations um, there needs to be housing we all know that but there's this great infrastructure of neighborhood councils and Uh, civic associations in East Boston. There's tons in Dorchester. And and it's allowed the community to have input and and control over where they live. It's it's really kind of unique. And um, I've watched it for decades now. And the whole thing that it's premised on is that the city, when they actually make the decision, will listen to them. Right, right. (laughs) If the city is no longer going to listen to these associations, what are they doing? Why are they having these three-hour meetings? And, And that's what's reverberating throughout the city when these things happen. And, and I can tell you in East Boston, they've read and heard about these things in Dorchester and it's happened there too. Um, so, you know, it's going to be, um, like you said, it's a stalemate in a lot of ways, but the city has all the power. I mean, the ZBA is the one that makes the decision. And if they feel like the, the zoning board, yeah, administration, yeah, zoning board of um, appeals, if they, appeals. if they feel that the housing is, is more, um, uh, in line with what's best for the city overall, um, then that's, that's where it's going to go. And, and it'd be interesting to see how these neighborhood associations react when 
more of this happens if it does. Um, I, I would say it probably will. Well, I think I'm going to put a button on this by saying I think it's going to have to happen is what is being forced in Cambridge finally, where I live. Hmm. Let's have a master plan. Uh-huh. We don't know what you're doing. You're approve here, approve here. Okay. How does that fit in some overarching plan? So that, to me, makes sense, and people could uh, still object, but they could see where you're going. But if you're a piecemeal here and a piecemeal there, I, I don't blame neighborhood associations for being quite angry. Mm-hmm. Let me move on to somebody else not being listened to. That would be Charles Yancey, District <laughs> 4 counselor who's on his way out. He was defeated by uh, Andrea Joy Campbell, so she'll be uh, the district counselor for that race. But he called a very important meeting. He said he called it in November, and nobody showed up, essentially. He's um, called 40 of these things. Okay. So what does that mean? And and we should say that his his the meetings are about uh, he wants some audits of what people are doing with their budgets with regard to diversity. Right. Okay. Uh, so what this is, uh, it's under the Post Audit and Oversight Committee. So what he's been doing um, with, these, with these hearings that he's called over the past year uh, to two years is he really wants to take a deep dive into the previous year's fiscal budgets and look at, A, what what are the departments spending their money on? Um, This meeting in particular, which has been rescheduled ostensibly, uh, and and the mayor's office has said they're going to work on coordinating that one. This one was intended to discuss uh, the fire department, the public's works department, um, and the police department and what they're spending, I believe, specifically on overtime this time around. Mm. But Which is a big issue for people. Mm. Which is a big issue. It got cut off at the knees, though, because no one showed up, showed yes. up and it was a 15-minute meeting. And uh, he, so they're trying to reschedule that one. Um, but one thing that the counselor has been saying is he's been trying to get a lot of department heads at these meetings. And in fairness, uh, one in November 20th was attended by two other city uh, um, representatives, but not these three department heads. Hmm. So he's still working on those. So his focus for these is uh, how the departments are spending their money and also what the breakdown is financially uh, regarding diverse employment. So he has been beating the drum on um, city employment statistics are disproportionate to the overall uh, makeup of the city, specifically city employees. But then if you break it down further into the top paid employees, the discrepancy right. increases. So he's been he's been beating this drum for quite a while, and now he's looking down about two weeks. He estimates the last possible date he can hold a hearing on this would be December 15th. And then and then that is about it. But he did promise at the council meeting on Wednesday that he would be putting together an end of term report um, on everything that he has gathered. So let me ask this, uh, you political watchers over here, uh, Seth and uh, David, does he have a shot? If he doesn't have a shot of getting them there, does he have a shot of having somebody pick this up in the new council? Well, I think that's probably would have been the more um, productive thing to do rather than have a meeting um, like this where no one comes. And I think previously they didn't come either. Um, maybe maybe it's... Um, I don't know how he's how he and his opponent, who is now the counselor Andrea elect, Joy yep, mm-hmm. Andrea Joy Campbell. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they've gotten along afterwards, but um, I know it was in, it was a little tense there at the end. I don't so. believe he ever conceded. Actually, okay. yeah, I thought right. so. So I mean, maybe, uh, that's well, she's pretty issues based. So I, I yeah. wouldn't hold that. I, I, this is my sure. observation. I don't yeah. know this to be. 
Well, so at some point, you have to sit down with – if you want your, your issue um, to continue, and it's a good cause, you have to sit down with the person who's going to be there in January and, and present what you've found, and, and hopefully um, they'll carry it on. Well, I'm just saying that it's an issue that, to me, it doesn't sure. have to just be Andrea Joy Campbell. Somebody else yeah. can pick it up, too. Anybody else. seems yeah. to me that this these are uh, interesting questions, and – and um, we should know. Mm-hmm. Uh, every time Mayor Walsh has done an audit of, let's say, salaries of women uh, employees in the city versus men, we've learned a lot. The audit of the BRA, we've yeah, learned oh, yeah. a lot. So the, he's saying, hey, heads of departments, tell me what you're doing, how who you're hiring, and where's the money going? I don't think that's an illegitimate question. So we shall see what there, happens. There is a component as well um, about that's been raised is whether or not this is the appropriate place to be doing this or whether it should just be through the Ways and Means Committee. So oh. that's another alternative to tapping a successor to this uh, committee, which he founded and chairs, okay. is uh, whether this should just naturally be under the purview of Ways and Means. Um, but what's been happening is since the post-audit committee has been taking on this responsibility – Ways and means hasn't because that would be a duplication right. of efforts. And, it, and obviously it's yeah. it's his hobby horse. So that's exactly. All right. Well, we'll see. Um, also being listened to, the folks who want marijuana to be legalized, David, there's a lot of them apparently. There are. It's interesting. The most interesting thing about this to me is there were two kind of competing measures, <laughs> uh, one which had national backing and one which was a more local and more kind of libertarian, hands-off, less regulation effort. And that latter one... Uh, which was actually endorsed by the Boston Globe's uh, editorial page. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have nothing to do with that, of course, but um, uh, uh, did not get enough signatures. They did not have the same infrastructure. And so you potentially had two competing uh, measures, one, again, kind of more libertarian, one that really their their name is, you know, the Committee to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol, um, to draw a, a political point that they're similar, but also because they want to mimic the structure to have kind of a cannabis control board of some kind and all kinds of rules and regulations. And there's some debate about whether that's wise or not. But it's that second approach, that more regulated approach that uh, got enough signatures. And um, it looks like it's headed toward the ballot uh, next year. So um, this is, you know, one of the handful of states that national marijuana legalization advocates are targeting. Uh, It's a presidential election year, which generally means uh, younger voters, more Democrats who kind of uh, favor this cause. Um, and it's looking like it's got a very good chance of getting passed. Um, and already the, you know, the, the Senate has a special committee on marijuana that's studying what kinds of uh, regulatory regime they'd like to put in place once this passes. They're kind of accepting it as almost inevitable at this point. Well, I'm sorry we have to leave it there because here's my big question. We'll have to have you back to answer it. And that <laughs> is what happens to the poor people who've been waiting for their medical marijuana all this time when this if this should go through? That's a regulatory nightmare right there, and they can't be left hanging. That was one of the arguments for taking the more laissez-faire approach is look how things have been screwed up with medical marijuana. Let's just be more hands-off. All right. Well, to be continued, and um, thank you all so much for joining me on this conversation. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you. David Scharfenberg is a politics reporter for the Boston Globe. Jennifer Smith is a staff reporter for the Dorchester Reporter. And Seth Daniel is the senior reporter for the Independent News Group, which includes the Revere Journal and Chelsea Record. Up next, we're cooking up something special with Amy Traverso. She's got the scoop on the best cookbooks of this holiday season. That's next on Under the Radar. I'm Callie Crossley.
I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. It's officially cooking season, and we're loco for local cookbooks. Tired of online recipes? We've got you covered. We're baking with the Brass Sisters, perusing the kitchen matrix, and taking our shopping list to the Vermont Country Store. Here with us to talk about why cookbooks are worth the money is Amy Traverso, Senior Lifestyle Editor for Yankee Magazine and author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for having me. Well, this is always an exciting conversation for me because I happen to love cookbooks. Though, I guess the first question to ask you is that why do people buy them now when you can go online? I know. it's And, and there's still a, a really active segment of the publishing industry. I think people like the tactile experience of of a book. When it comes to food, you want to feel something in your hands. You want to look at the pictures. There's something unsatisfying. And I, I use the internet all the time for information, for reference. I look up recipes, but oh boy, do I love to like curl up with a cookbook and read it and, and dream. It just, it evokes more like daydreaming and a little more creativity somehow. Um, so, and also they make really, really nice gifts. Well, they're beautiful. Um, and we should talk about that because food styling has become a big deal. So if you ever want to see serious food styling, it's in these beautiful cookbooks. It is in the books. I mean, there's lots of beautiful images online, but, um, you know, the way, but good food styling and good food photography is best shown on paper, I think. All right. So let's talk about some of the ones you brought and that have uh, got caught your eye. Yes. Well, so I'm focusing on um, books by authors who were local or have local ties um, because there's lots of them and they're great. Here's sort of the ultimate holiday cookbook. It's called Food Gift Love. It's by Maggie Batista, who is the founder of Eat Boutique, which is sort of a, mm. a boutique food company that um, sells, you know, small batch, wonderful artisan foods from around the world um, that you can buy online. But Maggie did this book, which is a guide to food gifts you can make for your friends oh. to give away. And and the thing I love about it is not only are there fun recipes for things like vanilla extract, cinnamon extract, thyme, honey, homemade mascarpone cheese and ricotta, um, uh, lemonine bean dip. There are all kinds of recipes and, and baked things like Madeline's. But she gives a lot of advice about how to package the foods, how to wrap them, how to sort of keep them fresh, how to make them pretty. So it's really the full package of how to package. So this is a it's wow. a great gift. It's a great gift to give to someone, but it's also something to, great to keep for yourself and then use to make your own homemade gifts. You know, you should make the gift and then or make something in there and give it uh, according to her directions and then give the book to That's perfect gift. That is such a nice gift. Yeah. So tell me about another one. Okay. So um, sort of along similar lines of something you might bake and give as a gift. Oh. Um, Marilyn and Sheila Brass. I love who, them. We, they're just so wonderful. Yes. Um, they're such treasures uh, from Cambridge, Massachusetts, who are um, custodians and interpreters of classic family baking recipes. And these are, they have a true respect for home cooking. They love home cooking and they love finding old recipes on scraps of paper or in books or recipes that people send them. And they they make these recipes. They maybe tweak them as needed and they preserve them and they keep them going. Um, One uh, one recipe that I was excited to see, because I don't know if you've noticed this, but speculus cookies and speculus flavored Things Ben and Jerry's is making a speculus ice cream. I had noticed it's it's a sort of a cinnamony biscuit. Mm. Um, it is all the rage right now. If you go to Trader Joe's, you're oh. going to find twelve products that are speculus flavored, including cookies. But they there's they even make these sort of peanut butter. Cu- 
cup style candies that are filled with speculous cookie butter. Hmm. So anyway, there's a recipe here for um, great speculous cookies. Um, uh, but there's all kinds of lemon Rio pie. There's a pie called dang good pie. <laughs> um, and, and the stories they tell behind these recipes are just so lovely and evocative and heartwarming. And, um, and it, you know, it's like having a best friend over for coffee and with, you know, with some delicious thing, even reading it, you sort of vicariously get that sensation when you read their books. Well, I'm glad you chose that when they were on with my colleague Jim Browdy on Greater Boston uh, the night before Thanksgiving to talk about some of the recipes in the book. And one that they mentioned, which is online currently, is chocolate uh, chess pie. Oh, I'm a so southerner. Good. Yes. So lemon yes. chess pie is what I'm aware Absolutely. of and know about, but I've never seen a chocolate chess pie. So this is a creation they've come up with. That's and a it's great supposed idea. To be quite good. So. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think. <laughs> they said at some point they started to realize it wasn't just about preserving recipes. It was about kind of the ne- what's the next generation of these recipes going to look like? And, and the whole fun of food is that you can experiment and you can swap out flavors. And, and that's great. And actually, that leads me to the next book, which I, I really love. It's, it's Mark Bittman's Kitchen Matrix. Mm-hmm. And I really love everything he does to demystify home cooking. I think he's one of the clearest teachers out there for home cooking. Mm-hmm. And um, he, and I love that he isn't trying to cook like a chef. He knows there's a difference between home cooking and restaurant cooking. And we can, uh, and we can respect home cooking as its own discipline. Well, well he has a lot of cookbooks. So and why he has is this a one lot different? of cookbooks. Yeah. So he has how to cook everything. Mm-hmm. What I love about this book is it basically breaks down cooking into um, basic principles in almost like modular units. So hmm. you, you're going through the book and it'll say, okay, here are the, here's, here's the basic master recipe for making a soup. Um, you want to sweat some aromatics, you want to add huh. your vegetables, then you want to add your stock, then you want to maybe finish with various, you know, herbs or some cream. So, so he kind of, he basically says, look, once you know how to know, make, once you know how to make the basic thing, you can do all these variations. And so there's say the master recipe for gazpacho and then there's you know 12 variations on gazpacho and it goes like that for so many ingredients it's how to deal with greens how to cook scallops and then 12 variations on cooking with scallops so if you want to learn how to cook all you have to do is master these essential recipes and then you can improvise on your own and you'll feel like a real master one of the things he's been doing in his other books, uh, not so much in this one as, as you've described it, his other cookbooks, is really pushing toward a, a plant-based diet. Yes. And I wondered if you're seeing that overall. I've seen some new cookbooks coming out. That seems to be where people are going. Yes. Uh-huh. And what I'm really excited about is seeing that trend playing out in restaurants where mm-hmm. vegetables are given respect. It, cooking Vegetables are no longer that little steam thing served on the side of the meat, which is the main, the main yeah. event. Um, I think, you know... I, Jody Adams, I think, was doing this a long time, a lot earlier than many chefs are now. I don't think she got enough credit for it at the time. But um, now even the sort of macho chefs who like five years ago were bragging about how many ways they could cook a pig are now actually taking the vegetables seriously, which is good for the planet and good for our health and good for their health and good for everybody. So I'm really happy to see that emphasis. I'm agree- I agree with you because um, I was at Branch Line, a new restaurant in the owned by the Eastern Standard folks um, the other night and I had the roasted carrots and I know people are going to go, 
big whoop. Yeah. Oh my God, they were so good. So good. <laughs> that was so yeah, good. <laughs> that's so good to hear that they like that they can be a centerpiece. That's exactly. really cool. I mean, Rebelle in Brookline also does a roasted carrots dish that is absolutely worthy of you know the the centerpiece of a meal. Now, um, so Mark Bittman's book. Let is... me remind people who I'm talking to. Yeah, uh, you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Amy Traverso, who knows everything about cookbooks, and that's what we're talking about. She's the senior lifestyle editor for Yankee Magazine and author of. The Apple Lover's Cookbook. So now I've heard about this. So this book, yeah. The Food Lab by mm. Kenji Lopez-Alt. Now, so the Mark Bittman book is a great primer. If you want to learn how to cook, go there and, and it'll just give you what you need to know, all the basics, and then you build on that. But if you want to go deep and you want to understand exactly why your egg cooks that way and exactly why chicken cooks the way it does and exactly the perfect way to... Uh, roast a brisk or to cook a brisket or make chili. This is the book for you. Mm. This book is, I mean, it's, hold, it's a workout in itself. <laughs> yes. It's almost a thousand pages. And Kenji, you know, um, lived in Boston for a number of years. He worked at America's Test Kitchen. He studied at MIT. He was going to be a biologist and decided, no, I, I'm really interested in food. So he went and studied cooking. He worked at Clio and a number mm. of other top restaurants. So he combines the kind of scientific rigor with this passion for food. And if I, I mean, this, it's obsessive in the most charming way. He has a lovely voice, a really humorous, warm voice. It's not an off-putting, sciencey book. Um, he will show you how to make not only the sort of perfect, long-simmered chicken stock, but also a quick chicken stock that's that uses gelatin and kind of unexpected hey, things like in it. Yeah. 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 So if you can sort of make a choice about how much time you have to invest, what you need to know about making flaky biscuits, what you need to know about how long and, and what type of heat to use to... Um, to make perfect boiled eggs. And one breath, one trick I love that I never had heard of before and which has made my poached eggs. Poached eggs are tricky, yes, right? They because are, you're cracking them me. and you I get know. all the stringy yeah. whites. This is such a great technique. His technique is you break the egg into a strainer and the loosest of the white will just oh. will just drain away and you're left with the firmer white and the yolk and then you slip that into the boil the simmering oh. water and you get perfect poached eggs every time. So this book is full of tips like that. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And the whole uh, flaky pastry, of course, is cold butter, as we know. Yes, um, yes. Le now, let me ask this question about the heftiness of this book. I mean, it's beautiful. It's detailed. It sounds like if I got into it, I would find stuff that I would enjoy because I like to cook, too. But, gee, they must have a lot of confidence that this kind of book which looks as though it may be expensive as well, will sell. Yes. I mean, how, how yeah, do they know that? Because they know that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a $50 book. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I'm lucky enough to have shared the same editor as Kenji at Norton, which is the publisher. She is um, a fearless editor, Maria Guarnaschelli. But I will tell you, Kenji's following on SeriousEats.com is so massive. Oh, the book has already sold... I. I heard the figure, and I, he is up to many tens of thousands of copies sold already. So this book was was going to be a success because his his the readers of his platform. blog were already re primed for this. Well, book. that brings me to another uh, question: is about the blog to books movement because a couple years ago, Smitten Kitchen became yes. a huge hit. Yes, Deb Perlman, and she's a home cook, and yes. now she's working on her second. And there appear to be others coming out that still are selling well because they have a following. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And now when you talk, if you have an idea for a cookbook and you want to 
seek out an agent or a publisher, the first thing they'll ask you is, what's your platform? Mm. And and you, you really, you know, it used to be that publishing companies would, um, you, you were, your job was to develop delicious recipes and have a voice. Their job was to market you and to get, to, to make people aware of your book. Now you really need to come to them and say, I can market myself. I've got this audience here. Um, you just need to print this book and get it out there and, you know, get it into bookstores. But I'm the marketing, I've got the marketing piece, you know, already well underway right. before the book's even printed. So it's a real change in the landscape and it's a real challenge um, because it's, you know, to, it's writing, a having a really successful blog requires not just doing great recipes, but being able to style food and photograph it well and, and write well. And do it well. regularly. Yeah, and, and really <laughs> keep it up. And, you know, for an uncertain reward until you get that book contract or start getting If that's your goal. Right, you know, exactly. So. Yeah. So, if listen, I, from your eye, because it seems to me you're looking at cookbooks from a couple of perspectives. One, as a cookbook author mm-hmm. yourself, so you know what it takes. And another, just as a person that really has food knowledge, mm-hmm. you know, from your work at, at Yankee Magazine. So how – do you use both of those lenses when you're looking at these books to say, I think this is a good one? Yeah, I like to see books that – either transport you in some way um, that are evocative and beautiful or that solve a problem. I think, um, I, th- I think you know, when I wrote the Apple Lovers Cookbook, I felt like there was a-, a problem I could solve, which is that there are hundreds of apple varieties now available to people, and each one functions differently in recipes, and no one knows <laughs> which ones to use. And I thought, okay, that's a justification for writing a book, and I like, the- I like doing those types of recipes, and that was fun. Um, but I think, um, you know, I like books that make people either give them that moment of, um, of, of, of daydream, of, of, trans, of sort of trans, a transporting moment, um, a moment of maybe fantasizing about making something you may never make, but mm-hmm. even the fantasy is satisfying or, or one that really solves that problem of how do we get dinner on the table every mm-hmm. day, which is, which isn't easy for anybody. I mean, I get tired of making supper every yeah. day for my, you know, for my family. I get tired of cooking. I need inspiration and that's my job. So, um, so, you know, that's why, for example, the Mark Pittman book is such a great, great yeah, solution. Yeah. And, and then, and then the books that give you that warmth, like the Brass Sisters book or like the Vermont Country Store book, which just came out this year. Um, it's a collaboration between the Orton family, which owns the Vermont mm-hmm. Country Store and Ellen Ecker Odgen and Andrea Deal, who are both writers and recipe developers. This book, it could just have been a sort of love letter to a, a, lo- a beloved brand, but it actually has really delicious recipes. Mm. It, it's it's very evocative. And because the Orton family, they're ninth generation Vermonters, so if you have ever had a fantasy of chucking it all and moving to Vermont, <laughs> this a, book is your... Yeah, yeah. This, read this, just read this book instead, because chances <laughs> are life won't be so easy That's if right. you actually do that. But there are recipes, you know, lemon sponge custard cups, mm-hmm. um, a wonderful, like, old-fashioned custard ice creams, um, molasses and maple baked beans. It's real New England, re- it sounds real like. Real New England, mm-hmm. but but not stodgy. It's got a fresh feeling. There's wonderful family stories, wonderful stories about life in Vermont. Um, the, uh, this is the kind of armchair travel cookbook, local armchair travel, but really a, a lovely, lovely book for anybody who has a fondness for New England or Vermont specifically. But it also crosses into that whole uh, culinary historian 
category if you want, because it's really talking about a region's recipes. Yes. Which yeah. I think if you are interested in that kind of thing, and I am, then that has another appeal to you, whether you never ever cook one recipe out of Absolutely, it. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and the, the one reason I, I wanted to write about food, um, I started off kind of with a general, I want to be a writer, I want to be a general magazine writer, but the reason I... I, I focused on food is I, I think food is a lens through which you really can explore history, culture, um, you know, nature. There, there, it's just a window to the world um, and and in a very personal, mm-hmm. you know, you can really um, connect with people very personally when you start talking about their family recipes. Um, one of my favorite projects I ever did was volunteer at the O'Brien School helping kids. They were putting together um, a cookbook with family recipes and these high schoolers talking about why this recipe was their favorite recipe that their parents made and hearing the family stories of of my immigration and um, and and you know families that had prof- that, whose parents were professional cooks or could barely cook but could make this one wonderful thing. I mean, we we connect so quickly and so intimately over food. I agree with you, and that's why I just purchased I two cookbooks, and both of them have a little bit of a, a, a cultural thing going to it. One is called The Jemima Code. It's Two Centuries of African-American Cookbooks by Tony Tipton Martin, and it's really a culinary history of African-American cooks. Wow. And she did all this research to find all of these uh, cookbooks, and as you know, certainly from where I'm from, you know, all the cooks were black. Yes, <laughs> and, so, and yet they got none of the and credit. And they got none of the credit, and, right. but a few of them managed to put together some cookbooks, and I don't think they sold well, but but still, she's right. got, she's documented this whole thing, and I think there's some favorite recipes, so I'm I'm looking forward to that, and um, that's the kind of thing that interests me. I also got another one which um, sort of transports soul food to healthy cooking oh, by Alice Wright. It's called Soul Food Love, Healthy Recipes Inspired by 100 Years of Cooking in a Black Family. And, oh, um, wow. This woman, Alice Randall, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about black women and fat and said, I'm going to work to just take these really – great recipes that everybody loves and really work them down right. to healthy. So, you know, and I'm, uh, I'm know. trying to work on that a little bit, too, with the food we're doing in Yankee, because traditional New England cooking yeah. was designed for people who are outside working all day. And a lot of Hauling the food, yeah, stuff, you know? and it's not it's not necessarily good stuff for us to eat a, a lot of. So I'm I'm interested in that myself, the taking that local regional cooking and, and, and giving it a healthier spin. So speaking of healthy, I wanted to uh, give a shout out to um, Maria Speck whose book you yes. may know. The first oh, one was Ancient Grains that yes. did very well. She now has a second book called Simply, Simply Ancient, Ancient Grains. And boy, was she ahead of her time and then right on time. Yeah. she. I mean, <laughs> our, our first books came out at the same time, and she just came at that first book with such a passion for the subject and such a belief that that information needed to be out there. And and it was so great watching the world kind of rise up to meet her and, and agree with her and um, and to see that book, you know, become such a success. And she has such a wonderful um, taste sense. I think she just has a great palate, and I love her style of cooking. And she's so accessible because she isn't, you know, she came, she's a very talented cook, but she came out of, um, you know, a home cooking background and a journalism background. And so she did the research, but she, um, she really understands what home cooks do, and she, but she does a very elevated version of home cooking that's also totally accessible. It really is. So I just wanted to say that she was, you know, it's good. Now, along those lines, and here's another one of those blog-to-book uh, cookbooks that I don't know anything about, but it sounds so yummy. The Sprouted Kitchen, Bowl and Spoon. I have to tell you, I'm doing a lot of that 
grains in the bowl with some yep. stuff on top. Yeah. So this sounds to me like this is what she's doing. She she wrote the recipes that her husband took the pictures for. What it. a great idea! Yeah. <laughs> there's um there's also the um there's a number there's a number of sort of of books about ferment. There's this very kind of health oriented fermented foods. Mm-hmm. Um, a, my friend Molly Watson did a book called Greens and Grains, which are very much about that bowl food where you've got your very nutritious grain and you've got mm-hmm. some kind of vegetable to go with it that makes it a complete meal. Um, the, all the Otolenghi cookbooks are yes. very much and designed he's got a third around. one now. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. incredible. Um, yeah. So, and I think it's a style of eating that um, I was just at an old ways conference last week where we were talking about you know what what. What do we agree on? There's so much conflicting information out there about what we should and shouldn't be eating. And is there a consensus out there among scientists? And certainly eating whole grains and more vegetables, we can all agree on. You can't go wrong. So let me talk to you about the celebrity craze, because um, I just was looking over just some of the ones that are, you know, being named by everybody. And a lot of them have to do with celebrity chef craze. That's what I mean. So, for example, a girl in her green, still in the same sort of healthy cooking, April Bloomfield. Right. People know her. And um, if you love uh, Barefoot Contessa, Ina Garden, which I do. I do, I do too. She can do no wrong <laughs> she in can my do book. No wrong. I mean, and how can you hate somebody whose catch line is, how easy is that? Well, she gets home cooking. Yeah. I mean, I love any chef who can also translate what they do at work back to the home kitchen. They have my vote. I know. So her new book is called Make It Ahead. So I'm curious to know um, how if you have a sense of, the celebrity books, and now we've talked about people with platforms, but if the celebrity chef books specifically seem to be leading in any way in this field. Well, I think Ina Garten keeps, uh, keeps a, I think Ina Garten makes it possible for a lot of smaller authors, such as myself, to be published. We don't have the same publisher, but I remember hearing a story um, from uh, uh, that when, if she makes a an appearance on, um, you know, QVC or HSN or one of those, mm-hmm. she can sell 25,000 books in a single go. So the publishing companies can afford to publish all these smaller books because ah, of Ina Garten. Yeah. So thank God for her success. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, we need those personalities. And what I love about her personality is, you know, she just feels real. She's not a bobblehead, yes. um, you know, cute but not particularly interesting celebrity chef. Um, and she's not uh, a, a macho, um, show-off-y kind of guy. You know, I, I think there's a place for all the, like, great chef cookbooks mm-hmm. as as repositories of, of, their, of their expertise. But personally, I just don't want to spend a lot of money on a book that is asking me to spend 10 hours prepping for a meal. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Yeah, I'm just I, not going to do pretty, it. Pretty much about three steps I'm out. But you know, <laughs> one one book that I do love oh. that I happen to have with me, okay. which is sort of Christina Tosi's Become oh, a Celebrity. Right. This is no her bar. first book. Now, she has her second book, um, uh, which just came out this past year. Is it Milk Bar Life? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the famous restaurant in New York. In New York, Momofuku. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, mm-hmm. and she um, and she's the pastry chef. Mm-hmm. And she became famous for some of the dishes she made. One one of her signatures is are these beautiful layer cakes that are not frosted around the side, so you can kind of see all the deliciousness. And then she she had her crack pie, which yeah, is yeah, that that's supposed to be great. I've never had that. I'm dying to have that. She's um, and she yeah. does stuff with cereal. She uses well, we all love the cereal milk, right? You eat a bowl of like 
like Captain Crunch, let's say you're a kid and yeah. you eat Captain Crunch. And at the bottom, the cereal looks the most delicious part. <laughs> she actually said, well, why don't we use that and make ice cream with that? Mm. She, I just, this is, I love this book as an example of someone with a, a really individual sense of taste and style um, who, who had a particular um, laser ability to, to notice what was delicious and, and then take that and build recipes on it. So she, you know, she loves graham cracker crust. So she <laughs> found a thousand ways to build not just pie around graham cracker crust, but cookies and, and ice cream and frosting and everything that's imbued with that flavor. Uh, it's the most fun book. If you want to just have fun baking, mm. get one of her books because they just are terrific. So and this is Milk with Christina Tochi milk, yeah. from uh, the Momofuku Milk yeah. Bar in New York that yeah. people know about. I wondered if there were other, so you were talking about yourself as being a small cookbook author, um, other small books that you think might get overlooked in the onslaught of all the people, the Odalenges, the the for that matter, Ina Garden. Um, I see that Hugh Atchison has a new one called The Broad Fork. You know those kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the books, classic books that I, um, I I keep going back to. I think I've learned more from this one book than any other is the Zuni Cafe Cookbook by mm. Judy Rogers. She yeah. passed away sadly a couple of years ago, but um, her book uh, explains technique. Um, Good cooking technique, basically Mediterranean-inspired technique. Um, She really just holds you by the hand and takes you through making all these recipes that that the restaurant made famous, like her famous roast chicken with bread salad. And but I learned uh, how to how to make scones from her. I think her her scone recipe was just such a such an attention to technique. But in such a um, accessible way, in a way that explains why you're doing what you're doing, I refer back to that book all the time. Mm. Of course, I love referring back to any of the sort of America's Test Kitchen um, recipes because if you ever want to understand, well, why should I do it this way? And I'm thinking about doing it this way. It's always great to see. Well, they've probably already tried it, and let's see what they That's found, right. and then let me take that and um, and see if I, you know, if I can improve on it or if there's something I'd like to do differently. Um, there's there's also one other author who is long gone, but who I wish we could rediscover. She was based in Brookline, but then moved to Vermont. Her name was Louise Andrews Kent, but she wrote under the name Mrs. Appleyard. Hmm. You can find her books in used bookstores and on Amazon and eBay. She was um, a woman before her time. She was almost like a Martha Stewart of the 40s and 50s, had such an original voice and really gave a wonderful lens into um, rural New England life uh, long before, say, the Vermont Country Store, you know, did their book. And they're just great reads. And she really profiles village life and then throws in recipes. So it's very much food memoir. Well, thank you so much, uh, Amy, for giving us a heads up on the latest wonderful cookbooks that are good for yourself or for gift giving and I look forward to trying many of them so thanks thanks Amy Traverso is senior lifestyle editor for Yankee magazine and author of the Apple Lovers Cookbook well that's it for this edition of Under the Radar join us next week at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed in the meantime you can find our show and links to stories we discussed today on the web at wgbhnews.org slash UTR I'm Callie Crossley. Our engineers are John Parker and Doug Schugertz. Catherine Whalen is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.